Good morning and welcome. This is Brad Furl and your host, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV here in historic Waterbury, Vermont. Chilly morning out there. Went out to the barn this morning to uh, bring water and hay to the sheep. I bring hot water from the house now because it's cold out there and the sheep like it. They think they're having weak tea, I guess. Uh, but one of the uh, buckets was frozen solid um we have two heated buckets so that wasn't so good and i'm a little sore today too last night i went out into the barn and going down the steps i slipped on uh some loose hay and fell and um my watch um vibrates and it talks to me and it said did you fall and i then I have to make a quick decision of whether I want to admit to that or not to my watch and and then worry that it's going to continue the discussion and say, maybe you're too old to be going out and feeding sheep and all of that. So uh, it's kind of how my world rolls. Uh, so we have a great show today. Uh, in the first hour, we're going to be talking with uh, Paula Diaco, who is – she offers writing book coaching and editing services. She was a microbiology lab person, so she's got the science side. She's a writer, magazine articles, the whole deal. So if you've got uh, writing in your blood and you want to know more and need a good coach, uh, give us a call today at 802-244-1777 over the first hour, and uh, Paula can help you. And then in the second hour, I'm going to be talking with uh, Burlington mayoral uh, race candidate Karen Paul. She's currently the council president. She's running for mayor for the March election. And we'll uh, talk to Karen and find out what's going on in Burlington and what her approach will be to being mayor if she's elected and how she can hopefully turn that city around. It's got uh, got some issues right now. So. With that, I want to welcome uh, Paula Diaco to the show. Welcome. Well, thank you. Yeah, good morning to you. And uh, so you, we were talking off air, you lived in Milton for a brief stint after coming from out of state when you were a young girl. and Many, many years ago. Many, yep. many years ago. Uh, was Milton, uh, was the racetrack there when you were a little kid? It was. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and was yeah. that anything you attended or? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I could hear it even from Main Street. Yeah. 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 It was loud. Well, it was a pretty famous place in the day. Very famous. And of mm-hmm. course, WDEV is all, is a racing uh, radio station. So, uh, but then uh, your parents moved you to the country. They did indeed. Wanted to get out of the big city of Milton and over to Underhill. Yep. Um, and so that was your very rural then. It, it was so rural. Yeah. Yeah. Such a big difference and contrast from today. Was that a culture shock? I think it probably was. I mean, I before we were in Vermont, we were in New Jersey. It was very suburban, so there were lots of kids to play with. There were places to go, you know, this the town pool, and then all of a sudden, I'm in the country. Like, yeah, really in the country. Right, uh, and um, there were not a lot of kids around, and if I wanted to see them, I either had to ride horseback, literally. Wow. Or be, um, you know, dropped off by my parents. So, but, you know, the country offers a lot of other things that the suburbs 
just can't. So I grew to love it pretty fast. What were some of those offerings that you remember? Uh, Just the beauty. Um, And as I mentioned, I did have a horse. I was lucky enough uh, to have one. And riding up in the woods on the old trails and whatnot is really something pretty unique and pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm a hiker, and one of my favorite uh, trails in Vermont starts at Underhill State Park. That yep, great trails. Goes, yeah. um beautiful views on Sunset Ridge Trail. Beautiful. And you see a lot of Vermont. It's like being a bird. Yes, <laughs> and, you know, interestingly, I was there this summer, and it reminded me of when I was a kid uh-huh. because it was just so unencumbered by people. It was really beautiful. Do you have the nostalgic uh, drive by the old house kind of thing? And I do. Yeah. And there are a couple of houses, and I drive by them all. You do. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all do that. I don't know if we tell anybody, but we do. I know, right? <laughs> uh, so. You know, I have guests that uh, I had a writer on last week who his dad worked in a, uh, a paper mill up in Sheldon. And uh, he, with the old thing about the apple falling far from the tree or mm-hmm. not falling, mm-hmm. his dad, like, uh, gave him the boot and said, no way you're going to work in, the, in, in, in this paper mill. Go west, young man. And uh, – but you've got – uh, you came from remarkable parents in sort of what you're doing. Is that right? Yeah, totally. My dad is a retired journalist. My mom was a short story writer and poet. So growing up, the you know the conversations in the house were all about language and writing and books. Later in life, my mom started selling antiquarian books. So again, you know, it's just the topic of conversation almost always ends up on what are you reading. You know, what are you enjoying? What are you writing? And if I were to go over to my parents' house and say, you know, I'm working on a short story, would you like to hear it? Could you give me some feedback? Um, she was all ears. Okay. Just, you know, would cozy right up close to me and make suggestions as I read it to her. So, yeah, writing was definitely a big part of my growing up. And your dad, uh, for the Burlington Free Press, mm-hmm. back when it was a big, healthy, hearty paper, yes. right? Yes, totally. He was an editor, I think, in medical. He covered the state house. Um, he covered local business. So, yeah, he knew everyone in the state, literally. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. Um, and they were based on College Street, maybe? At the, they were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the newspaper ha- business has struggled, right? It really has. Journalism has as a whole. Yeah. It's not what it was when I was a kid, for sure. Right. Yeah. But writing is still important. Writing is super important. Super important. Uh, it's not something that's going to go out of style. You know, people have been always worried about new inventions um, that were going that are going to put and eliminate something like writing um, but it's a basis sort of like math you have writing and you have math or a basis for so many other things so yeah it's just as important today as it as it's ever been um, so we did talk about you had a lot of influence from um, parents but that's not 
the route you took initially, though, writing or 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 the, or the like, more science. You know, I didn't come to science until high school. Okay. Um, but I have been writing something since I learned to write in elementary school. Um, why I took a, a turn, a quick turn to the right into science, I still don't exactly know why, except that I love this subject of biology. Um, and I think that I was led to believe that if I majored in let's say, creative writing, there wouldn't be a job for me on the other side. Uh-huh. And I didn't actually want to be a journalist like my dad, so that wasn't an option for me. So I decided to major in science, only to discover that the best jobs go to the PhDs. Mm. <laughs> so, um, But I loved it, and um, it science actually helped me to get back into writing after I got my degree. So I owe a lot of what I was able to do career-wise to, uh, career to science specifically. And were you in academia with science? It- I was not. I was a um, lab technician for the USDA and at Iowa State University where I graduated from college. And um, I got this little tapping on my shoulder, which is what writing does, asking uh, me to come back and play, and <laughs> I listened to it and decided to write for a variety of uh, magazines, including and starting with two that were covering the genetic engineering field, which was at that time brand new. So more technical writing, you're saying? Or? Yeah, w- they were trade magazines, so it was technical in that it was, you know, very science-based, and I'd have to interview scientists and um, okay. whatnot. So, yeah, it was pretty technical. Yeah, well, that's interesting, and uh-huh. you had the background to ask the questions, right? Yes. Uh, we're talking with uh, Paula Diaco, who is a, she offers writing, book coaching, editing services. She can probably tell you some microbiology stuff if you <laughs> ask her. I don't even I don't even know if I can smell spell microbiology, so uh, I'll need some help there too. We're talking with Paula Diaco, who is a writing, book coaching, editing service, and and a lot more. And we're going to get more into the things that she does and helps writers with. If you're an aspiring writer and you need some coaching, which we all do, uh, give us a call, 802-244-1777. And uh, our reach appears to be... Pretty far today. We have a caller from Miami, Florida. Yvonne, welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> Very well, thank you. How are you, Yvonne? I am awesome. And, you know, Paula, I have been a major admirer of your work for a while now. Aww. And when I heard you were going to be on today and I was invited to ask a question, um, I was hoping that I'd get a chance to get through. So thank you both. Of course. Thanks for coming on. And it's probably a little warmer where you are than it is here. <laughs> Let's hope so, right? Well, if it's any consolation, we just came out of hurricane season and uh, had a major, we call it a cold front. We're in the 50s. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't even wear shirts when it's in the 50s. So. <laughs> but, um, sorry. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> uh, did you so, have a, yeah. a question or yeah, comment? Yeah, my question was in, yeah, my, my question was in reference to, um, let's say someone is self-published 
and they want to start navigating the murky waters of getting published otherwise. What advice would you give um, and how do they stay resilient despite some of the challenges they might encounter just going through the publication process? Sure. So let me understand you. Somebody is self-published and then they want to be traditionally published? Yes. The same book? It, it You know, it was a few years ago, but talking to agents in recent uh, months, um, it seems to be the trend there that a self-published book is going to remain self-published unless, and there's always exceptions to every rule, and there are a lot of them in publishing. Um, it, it sells like a lot, and I mean thousands and thousands, and the author has established some uh, level of fame with that book. Uh-huh. But Makes that's sense. a unicorn. Uh, for everyone else, um, keep that self-published book self-published, and your next book is the one that you want to pitch traditionally. However, do keep in mind that your self-published book still has to sell at some decent level, and it's you know going to probably be a minimum of 5,000 books, and if it's more than that, really, that's so much better. Um, mm-hmm. So it can show that you can sell a book and that you can write a book that can sell. But that book is probably going to remain on the uh, self-published side of the publishing tracks, if you will. Absolutely brilliant. That's yeah. what I was wondering. Awesome. Thanks All right. Well, thank you for the call, and uh, thanks for the uh uh, reaching, uh, WDEV, uh, thousands of miles away. We love that. <laughs> uh, so Paula, let's follow up with that. There's, you know, I, I think in publishing, there's now so many routes that somebody can take. There and, are. And yeah. people sit in their living room and they scratch their head and they go, well, I'm going to self publish because this is the greatest book that was ever written. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are a few people like that. Yes. <laughs> and then what happens? Uh, then they discover how hard it is. Okay. It has so many moving parts. Um, and because of that, a, um, another opportunity has arisen. Uh, very smart people have, um, discovered that they helped people self-publish and that it's actually a niche that they could fill with something called hybrid publishing. And hybrid publishing is a, um, where you pay them to publish your book. Different from a vanity press which simply prints and puts together your book and prints it for you, but doesn't do anything else in terms of marketing. Right. It's just so that you, you've got a book, like a legacy book for your family. Yeah. But a hybrid publisher at its best will actually, um, do everything a traditional publisher does, but the writer author actually makes an investment. In return, the writer gets a, a higher royalty. So it often is a a very nice place for someone to be who doesn't want to wait to be traditionally published. That is a very long process with zero guarantees that you will be. And it takes them out of that, I have to figure it all out on my own self-publishing place. So it's it's a good option, but it's yet another option because within hybrid publishing, there are many, many different um business practices within it there's assisted hybrid publishing there's you know the publishing uh, uh, hybrid publishing i just described where you get royalties i mean it's just 
there's just so many moving parts. And for someone who is just starting in writing books and wanting to get them published, it's quite a learning curve. Yeah, I would think so. And getting back to the self-publishing on what Yvonne was saying, if you self-publish and you, you know, 27 of your best friends and your family mm-hmm. buy the book and that's about it. Yeah. And then you write another book. It, it, does that become a detriment to publishing? No, it doesn't okay. actually. Yeah. No. Um, especially if it's only 27 people, nobody's going to know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if you've been out there marketing that self-published book, there's there may be some trails that, um, you know, people could follow. But an agent isn't going – they don't have the time to do that. Yeah. They're going to look at the book that you're currently pitching to them, and if it has value, then they'll engage with you. So, no, it isn't a detriment. Go ahead and write that book. It's good practice. gets you into writing. It gets you, you know, into publishing, and that's okay. Uh, we're talking with Paula Diaco, who is a writing, book coaching, editing service person, and a lot more, giving – probably a psychologist, too. Is that right? Uh, you know, I – actually have thought about going back to school for psychology. (laughs) In all seriousness, I'm one of those sorts of people who when I work with clients, they tell me all the things. And I'm I'm really grateful for that because it helps me serve them better. But sometimes I do wish I, I was a psychologist too. So tell us a little bit more about what somebody's got their, their dream book. And I understand from from uh, former guests, the the first book you've been writing your whole life, right? Yeah, yeah, very often. Uh, so they come to you and say, you know, Paula, I've got this great book, and what do you do then? So I primarily work uh, with people writing nonfiction, and within the nonfiction, they are primarily uh, business professionals. So they'll come to me and they'll describe the book and um, they may say, I don't know where to begin. I do not know how to start this. Or they'll say, I have three chapters and I can't seem to write past them. Um, and already they've told me a lot. So it's not at all unusual that people aren't exactly clear on what it is they're writing because they've got a huge topic and it's probably, actually, it absolutely is related to their business expertise, their experience, their philosophy around business, uh, or some aspect of their industry that they've discovered um, may have an issue and they have um, a solution to that. So we sit down and always uh, talk about their topic. So we pull down the topic to a really good book idea. It's very defined and refined. And we match it to the audience, which for a business person is usually their clientele. And they usually know pretty well who their best clients are. But we double check. And sometimes this happens quite a bit. And in fact, I spoke with someone yesterday. They want to sell that book to everyone. And if you want to sell a book to everyone, you're going to sell it to no one. Mm Mm-hmm. Unless you're writing an encyclopedia. Yeah. And I don't recommend that to anyone <laughs> to do. Uh, so we really define and we go back and forth, um, between the, the, the book idea and the audience just to really match them up. 
And then we look at the book's competition. What else has been written on that topic? And is this book going to fill a niche that is open, that has not been um, covered yet by another book writer? You don't want to write another, you know, uh, book that's already out there um, and doing well. You want to write something from an angle or, um, uh, yeah, from an angle that is unique and makes it um, cover the same topic but from a different point of view. Yeah. And is it going – I think what you're saying, it's a target market that's going to have an interest in the book. Yes, and not absolutely. much interest beyond that for, for readers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's right. Uh, I will comment that at one point in my life, my grandfather um, pulled out the Encyclopedia Britannica A and handed it to me and and said, start here, <laughs> read them all. Mm-hmm. And uh, I never did, actually. I should have, but it's <laughs> probably why I'm so limited in life now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so very interesting, um, the nonfiction uh, more technical business writing and, and all of that. Uh, so are, do you go beyond that, the, the business and the science stuff in terms uh, of your coaching? Um, I was, I was offering services to fiction writers and just really discovered that I had a lot more fun with nonfiction. Uh, I happen to write fiction and love to write it, but I I am not the best person to delve into people's um, 80,000 word, um, you know, uh, novel. Yeah. Basically. Um, so I stay with the nonfiction and really enjoy it. Uh, sometimes within the nonfiction, there'll be memoir. I do work with some memoir writers and especially memoir, what I call memoir hybrids, which may bring in aspects of their life story into their business book, which is actually more common than you'd think. Got it. We are talking with Paula Diaco, who is a writing coach, uh, editing, uh, psychologist in the making, uh, all of those things. And we're going to talk more about her projects and how, how, uh, she helps writers achieve their goals. But we're going to go to the phone lines. We're not quite as far as Miami this time, but Pat from Underhill, welcome to the show. Good morning, Brad and Paula. Hi. Good morning. Um, <laughs> a familiar um, face on radio. <laughs> right. <laughs> Brad, uh, my condolences for your fall. I hope your watch doesn't push you around too much. And you feel better, so. I know. It's um, like a relationship. I don't know if I want it or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was listening to Paula. Just I'm trying to phrase it. Listening to Paula talk about helping nonfiction writers to put their books into shape and she writes fiction and I know Paula likes story a lot and I was just thinking um, people think of nonfiction as a lot of facts and a lot of how-to stuff a lot of you know stuff and and story is something that engages us and makes us excited and kind of carries us through and we live it and I know that Paula also helps people to find the story in nonfiction because everything is a story. I mean, when I work on books, I have to find the beginning. I have to find the next step that lets the reader move to each step as I go along and continue to follow and not get lost in the weeds. And I wonder if she would talk a little bit about how nonfiction story can be very engaging and a lot of it is memoir, but 
story is always a part of helping you shape your book. Anyway, that was my thought, and I will, am actually going to hang up and let you guys talk. Great. Thanks for the call, Pat. We appreciate it. Such a good question. And uh, I have an example from a client I worked with a couple of years ago. Uh, great guy, leadership coach, very um, good at what he did, and he wanted to write about leadership and his um, whole philosophy and process for leadership. And um, he got into the weeds a lot. He cited awesome citations uh, to support his philosophy. And I said, but tell us about an example of that aspect of the process. And um, some people, actually, their mind goes blank, and they're like, I don't have a story about that. But he did, and he had a lot of them, and they were great stories. So we made a, a a concerted effort for each chapter for him to add a minimum of one story to it to support his philosophy. And then we edited it so that it flowed so it wasn't like fact, 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 story, fact, fact, fact. We blended in the story uh, with uh, the data and whatnot. And it read Great, not like a novel, obviously, but it still was extremely readable, and the story was what made it stand out. So whenever you can add story to something that's dry and otherwise potentially dull, I recommend it. And did that broaden the potential audience of the book as well or not? It didn't broaden the audience, but I think that it engaged the audience on a deeper level. Uh huh. So I, I have been doing consulting for my whole professional career and I sometimes have clients, uh, a, a case in point is some, I had a client that they were dealing with monochloramines and I didn't, I couldn't spell monochloramines. I didn't know what they were. Had to research it, had to really come up to speed. You're, you're coaching people on nonfiction and very technical sometimes. Do you have to learn what they're writing about in order to help them? You would think so, right? But um, in fact, I have not had to do that. Okay. Um, I've worked with lawyers, with leadership coaches, with um, people from a variety of industries. And um, one of the things that's beautiful about the books that they're writing is that they're I don't want to say they're writing them for lay people. They are definitely for people within their industry, but they aren't, te- they aren't a technical guide. They're not, um, deep in the weeds. They're not an academic type of book. So they need to make it readable and they need to not have it at such a level that people within their industry are not going to read it. So where I need to understand a concept, we'll talk about it, but I don't actually have to become an expert. I can see beyond um, what it is that they're doing and help them bring it into uh, chapters that make sense. And I don't know how that is, but it works. It yeah. just works for me. So The Sound of Music has uh start from the very beginning. Do you, yes. Do you have a do you start from page 1 with with your writers and and work forward or Sometimes it's chronological, sometimes it's asynchronous. 
some books simply you could open them up to a chapter and benefit from it not having had read the chapters up to that point yeah Te- usually it's it they tend to be chronological or they go they go from the simple concept to the more difficult at the end I don't know what you call that, but you, you, you learn something, you know, very easy at the beginning to introduce it and it becomes more involved. Um, that's typically the way the books flow, but, um, you know, memoir, of course, which is nonfiction and I do do some work with it, uh, could start in media res, which means that it starts in the middle of the story. Uh huh. Yeah. So it's not, it's not chronological. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because my daughter's 14. She loves that start. It's a great start. Yeah. Yeah. And, and starting in action as well is just catches you right away and totally, you know, invites you into the book to read. It's a really good way to start a book. Right. So um, you get uh, clients who come to you and, and they want to write a book. Is there... the Writers come in all um, packages of giftedness, maybe. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but can anyone write a technical book with your coaching? Can you get them through the process? I can, and it has more to do with their willingness and their interest in writing than it does their ability. So, um, you know, I have had some people who are um, absolutely enthusiastic about their uh, business that they have and the people that they serve, but to be able to work in between sessions to produce writing for me to review is very hard for them. And I can't make them want to love writing. Yeah. I can't do that. They either want to do it or they don't. So that gets a little tricky. But if they are someone who doesn't have, you know, scintillating, a scintillating writing style, I can help them get a manuscript together and we can go back and improve things. So it's kind of funny how that works. And what's uh, the average length of a book that you guide on? Is there can be anywhere between 30,000 words and 75,000 words. Okay, quite a range then. It's quite a range. And do you have a responsibility in your coaching um, professionalism to edit these technical books, do you have to, do you have to read the whole book yourself and look for commas and apostrophes? I don't do that. That's copy editing and I don't offer that at all. Okay. I work at a much higher level, um, in the developmental editing realm, yeah. which is looking at structure and how the book flows and how it's constructed from a chapter level. Um, so I'm looking at it from a 30,000 point, yeah. you know, 30,000 foot view. And um, seeing how it is as a structure rather than getting into the weeds with the commas and the dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And do you look at the book as if you want to know about the topic and and Uh, have it intuitively make sense? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Even if I'm not an expert on law, I want to know 
um, how it's structured so that so that the first page and the first line on the first page is going to draw me in. It's still vitally important that it does that. Wow. Uh, yeah. We've talked about that on uh, prior shows where it's that process of looking at the cover, looking at the back, yes. opening it up, reading looking the at first. the table of contents. Yeah. 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 Reading the introduction or looking at the introduction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you either put it back on the shelf or you, yep. or you buy it. That's right. Uh, we're talking with Paula Diaco, who is, uh, this great writing and coaching and editing, uh, services that she offers. Uh, she started in a microbiology lab and got a little bored and her heart called her back to Vermont and, uh, the mountains of Underhill and all of that. We were talking off air just now, Paula, about when somebody comes to you, they they have an idea of what they want to do with a book, and you're helping getting their book from A to Z done. Uh-huh. But they also may have an idea of how they want to publish, meaning self-publishing or traditional publishing. That's correct. And, right. and you're telling me there's a difference there. Yeah, there's a huge difference. So if they're going to self-publish the book, they have total 100% control over um, how the book is written, how long the book is written in terms of words and pages, and how ultimately it's going to be put into print and put out in the world uh, versus traditional publishing, which uh, you are pitching to a huge industry. Um, Very often you start with uh, pitching an agent who then is going to turn and pitch to one of the big five, or actually probably all of the big five publishers. Um, they are a liaison between the writer and the pu- those publishing houses because those publishing houses are so popular and they get deluged with so many pitches, they want them to come through an agent who's already vetted the um, goodness or not of the book proposal they will have received from the writer. So they become like the vetting uh, agent for the publishing house, the, and that works more or less how traditional publishing um how people get into the traditional publishing world. And then do you as an agent, are, are you an agent as well? I am not. You're not. Okay. I'm not. So I'm, I'm a book coach, which yeah. some agents don't even understand why they why we exist, but yeah. that's okay. But it's a walk before you <laughs> run, right? It is. It is. It's getting that book proposed. So, you know, if they want a really good book proposal, a book coach who knows what they're doing and helps the writer is going to, to help produce a good proposal that they can look at and see the value of the book. They, they're going to look at the interest, the uh, novelty of the of the topic. Um, is this writer somebody with a platform? And a platform is an audience that they have. Are they coming to them with you know good social media stats and email open rates and all sorts of other interesting things like that? And um, do they see that this book could sell? Because they literally have to pitch the publishing house, the acquisitions editor, who's also going to be looking at those things. The acquisitions editor at the publishing house in turn goes to weekly meetings and pitches the idea to the um, 
to the accountants in the room who ultimately will make a decision if that book has value. So there's lots of steps along the way of people who need to be in and need to be convinced that the book really is worthy of being published. So when you say accountants, are you saying that they're like the bean counter Uh and they're calculating if enough books will sell to even make it worth it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. so, so I was, I attended the, uh, Vermont League of Writers workshop this summer and I think you were unable. I was there. You were there. Yeah. yeah that's right. And you presented, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I heard there was the, the publishing agents, um, or the, the people who bring the books to the publishing agents, they can look at a, at a book for 8.3 seconds and, go yes or, or no agents who are experienced yeah they know what works and what doesn't and um so they're going to look at that proposal and they're actually going to look at the email that you sent to them with the proposal or not it's it's there's lots of etiquette and there's lots of different ways to approach them but you want to have a good query letter the query letters is basically going to be a very brief now email. It used to be when I was querying magazines back in the day, it was a literal letter, but now it's an email and it's going to, it's a sales pitch. It's going to be intriguing. It's going to tell them, the agent, how long the, the uh, book will be in terms of words. It'll, um, show the, the writer's expertise on the topic. Um, it, and it'll give a little bit of um, an idea of what the book is about and for whom. And on that, an agent can then request the proposal and read that proposal. And again, that proposal is like a much larger sales pitch with lots of supporting data, sample chapters, an overview that says why it's worthy. Um, in it, you'll, um, the writer will have indicated the need for the book, the purpose for the book, how they're going to market it, what is their platform. It's quite a big document. It can be 30 pages long, 50 pages long. Wow. Or even longer. Um, and it is a really, really, really good way for an agent to see the merit in the book or not. They will not have read the whole thing if they didn't think the query was worthy. Yep. They will delete it and go on to the next one. Wow. Yeah. It's quite a little cutthroat. Now, you did magazine writing. Did you go through the trepidation of submitting and getting the um, Dear John letter? Or <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, when I was graduated from college, I actually wanted to write books, and I didn't think I had it in me. I really didn't. And But I really wanted to be published. And um, somebody told me, well, you know, start submitting to magazines. And as it happened, I was in Iowa at the time. A woman in town was a stringer for the Wall Street Journal. And she started out um, basically magazine writing for a variety of magazines and then eventually landed at the Wall Street Journal as a stringer covering Midwestern topics. And she ran a workshop. And I went, and she gave us the entire lowdown of how to pitch to magazines and get published. And I did that for a couple of years, and it was super fun. Uh, When we moved from Iowa, my husband and I, uh, to New Jersey, I was a stringer for the um, 
couple of newspapers in the area, the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, Philadelphia, Philadelphia newspaper, mm-hmm. and I can't even think of what it's called. Um, and I believe it was the Bergen Record I also pitched to. This, again, was back you know, in the Pleistocene era. Yeah. When I was doing this. But, you know, writing for magazines is a great way to learn how to pitch and to learn how to write and to learn how to write really good queries because that's the thing that's going to get your foot in the door. Uh huh. And are, is there still a, a viable magazine writing trade out there? There is. It's um, sometimes it's online. Um, there is still uh, print magazines. Um, the querying is a little different. I will admit. I know Sooner said it's a good way to practice querying. I think it's a little easier now, actually, than it was when I was doing it when it was strictly print. Um, and there are lots of platforms where you can blog. And it's not magazine writing. You don't get paid for it, but you're getting your byline. You're getting visibility, and um, and you're getting credits that are legitimate credits. Um, you're not edited, but you know everything has changed in the online world. So, um, but there are magazines that you can pitch to. Yeah. Are. yeah. So, so we only have a couple minutes left. Uh, when you are home, it's 10 o'clock at night. There's a fire going. It's quiet in the Underhill Mountains. What are you reading? What's, what's the most attractive book to you? I read, I, I read a lot of books on writing. I have a huge library and wow. I just pull them out and I open up literally and to a chapter and start to read. Um, I do read some fiction, not as much as I should. Um, I'm just starting lessons in chemistry, so pat in the back, being current and reading a, a bestseller. Um, but um, I, I read a lot of nonfiction, including memoir. Uh, my daughter... Um she didn't insist I read lessons in chemistry, but <laughs> I, I I went at it. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it must have been very interesting to you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, for for many reasons, and yes. it was very. My daughter loved the book. Uh, we're talking with Paula Diaco. If you've got um, the desire to write a book and you can't step one foot in front of the other, uh, how do they get in touch with you? Uh, they can get in touch with me through my website, which is write, W-R-I-T-E, storiesnow.com. Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. If people are on social media, you'll find me there under my name. Fa- friend me on Facebook. I'm, a- I'm there as well. Yeah, and I'll mention that uh, one of the reasons I wanted to bring uh, Paula onto the show is I, I have we're friends on Facebook, and all these uh, posts she puts on, they were like directed at my forehead. I felt like I had a bullseye and, uh, in a helpful way. Yeah, I always try to be helpful. <laughs> if you want to be a writer, Paula Diablo, Diaco, sorry, uh, is, uh, will be a good guide for you. And, uh, we, as we heard today, it's a, it's a very complicated process, right? It is. It really is. Yeah. But fun. It but, can be fun. But you can fun and you build a relationship mm-hmm. with your clients and yes. you become friends and, and you, you get them to where they need to go. Absolutely. Yeah. 
great. Well, we'll have you back. We're looking forward to when you, you know, all your books published and uh, seeing a picture of your uh, all the magazines stored in the corner of the bedroom. <laughs> all of that. This is Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint. We're going to be back with Karen Paul, who's running for mayor, uh, right after this. 